Thank you for being part of Parkside Green's Bible study. Uh, I'm Pastor Steve, thankful to join you in soaking in profound truths from chapter 22 of Luke's Gospel. Uh, this week is all about the ways that we fail and how God meets our failures with his abundant grace. So the theme for this week is our failures and Jesus's grace. In verses 31 to 34, we'll see a failure of pride. In verses 35 to 38, we'll see a failure of understanding. In verses 39 to 46, we'll see a failure of support. In verses 47 to 53, we'll see a failure of betrayal. And in verses 54 to 62, we will see a failure of loyalty. And you'll remember our setting is in the upper room on the evening of what we call Maundy Thursday, the night before Jesus' crucifixion. In front of all the other disciples, Jesus addresses Simon Peter, explaining that Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. And perhaps in your study you noticed that in the footnotes, the Greek word for you, uh, that appears twice in verse 31, is plural, the plural you. In other words, Satan was seeking to sift or to shake all of the disciples, to cause all of them to fail in their faith. It's a bit like how Satan asked for God's permission to try to trip up Job in his faith. Our adversary, the devil, prowls around seeking someone to devour. But then in verse 32, four times Jesus uses the singular form of you and your when he says, I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you, Peter, have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In his pride, however, Peter can't imagine his faith failing. What do you mean, when I've turned again? I'm never turning away from you in the first place. Uh, Peter says to Jesus with total self-confidence, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I'm going to be with you no matter what. And if you look at the parallel passages in Matthew 26, 31 and Mark 14, 27, you'll observe that Jesus says to the whole group of his disciples, you will all fall away from me because of me this night. That's when Peter, in his pride, says, not me, uh-uh. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Matthew and Mark report that all the disciples said the same. So Peter's pride was front and center on display, but he was not alone in his bravado. They all said the same. They needed to trade their proud self-confidence for humble God-confidence. And Jesus, in his great mercy, meets this failure of pride with rich grace in two ways. Number one, Jesus says, again in front of all the others, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Jesus graciously tells them beforehand so they're not taken by surprise when it happens. And number two, even when Peter didn't realize he was in spiritual danger, Jesus prayed that Peter's faith may not fail entirely. And in answer to Jesus' prayer, Peter will turn back in repentance and strengthen his brothers and help them grow and become a leader in the church. By God's grace, Peter's denial that night was not the end of his story. We can praise Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Next, we see a failure of understanding. Jesus asks his disciples if they lacked anything when Jesus sent them out earlier in Luke 9 and 10 with no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. And they say, no, nothing. We, we didn't lack anything then. 
But, Jesus explains, the situation is about to change. Now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. The times when people took you into their homes and provided everything you needed are going to change. So Jesus graciously gets them ready for life post-crucifixion. Because a scripture from Isaiah 53:12 about the suffering servant must be fulfilled in Jesus. He was numbered with the transgressors. That was written about Jesus, and it's going to be fulfilled the very next day when he is crucified between two criminals, two transgressors. And when that happens, Jesus' disciples will be in a very different situation. But the disciples fail to understand Jesus' main point, and they say to him, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus responds, It is enough. He indicates they're, they're off track. I mean, within a few hours, Jesus is going to steer them away from using literal swords to defend him. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, right, we've seen that Jesus' disciples fail to understand his teaching. But Jesus mercifully meets their failure to understand with grace-filled correction. That's enough talk about two swords for 11 disciples. I'm telling you simply that the peaceful conditions in which you ministered earlier, not needing any provisions of money or knapsack or sword, they're changing real soon. So Jesus graciously corrects their failure of understanding. Thirdly, we see a failure of support in verses 39 to 46. After their time in the upper room, as had been their custom, Jesus and his disciples left the city of Jerusalem. They came out of it, went to the Mount of Olives, and when he arrived at the place, his usual spot in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told his disciples to pray that they may not enter into temptation. Prayer is what keeps us from entering into or yielding to temptation. And from what follows, we can see that their immediate temptation was to fall asleep rather than staying awake and supporting Jesus in his hour of need. Again, the parallel passages in Matthew and Mark are helpful in noting that Jesus asked all of his disciples to sit there while he withdrew to a nearby spot to pray. Then Jesus took Peter, James, and John a bit closer with him, and he told them that his soul was very sorrowful. He asked them to remain there and to watch with him. He was seeking the support of his friends during this agonizing time. But they failed to support Jesus. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. They were certainly exhausted from the long day and the sorrow of what was ahead. So Jesus woke them up by asking why they were sleeping. Again, Matthew and Mark provide additional detail. After his first session of prayer, when Jesus found the disciples sleeping, he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Then after his second session of prayer, Jesus again found them sleeping, and this time they didn't know what to answer him. And thirdly, after his third session of prayer, Jesus said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It was failure after failure after failure to support Jesus in his time of need. And once again, we see Jesus' rich grace on display, because while the disciples were disobediently sleeping, Jesus was obediently submitting his will to the Father's will. 
Luke tells us that as Jesus knelt in prayer, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As God's holy, sinless Son, Jesus understandably did not want to drink the cup of God's wrath against sin. It's something that's referenced in Isaiah 51, 17, Jeremiah 25, verses 15 and 16. But even though on one level he did not want to, Jesus obediently submitted his will to the Father's will, and that brought grace to us. You see, Adam and Eve's disobedience in the Garden of Eden, my will be done, was reversed by Jesus' obedience in the Garden of Gethsemane, thy will be done. And Luke tells us it was unbelievably hard. Jesus was in agony as he anticipated bearing all those sins. He who knew no sin, the sinless one, was preparing to become the sin bearer for us. But in his agony, Jesus never felt sorry for himself. You don't read about a pity party here. Instead, in his agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, so much that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, some say Jesus' sweat was so heavy it was comparable to drops of blood as it fell to the ground. And others say this was likely a case of hematidrosis, when a, a person is under so much stress that their capillary blood vessels dilate and burst and it ends up mixing their sweat and their blood. I mean, it was intense. And thankfully, an angel from heaven came to strengthen Jesus. Just as angels came and ministered to Jesus after his intense temptation by Satan at the beginning of his ministry. The disciples, they failed to support Jesus, but the angel strengthened him. Heaven itself was involved in this spiritual battle. The disciples failed to pray, but Jesus did not. While the disciples slept, Jesus repeatedly prayed and readied himself for what was to come. And that brings us to our fourth section, a failure of betrayal, in verses 47 to 53. While Jesus was still speaking to his disciples about their sleeping, there came a crowd led by Judas, one of the twelve. And this, if this was our first time hearing or reading Luke's gospel, it would be the first time that we knew who the betrayer was. Judas drew near to Jesus to kiss him which would be a customary way a disciple would greet their rabbi. But in this case, the kiss was Judas's way of identifying who Jesus was in the darkness of night. Mark 14.44 says that the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. So what looks like an act of respect and friendship is an act of betrayal, which is why Jesus says to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Really? When the disciples who were around him sized up the situation, they could see what was going down, they asked Jesus, Lord, should we strike with the sword? And one of them didn't wait for an answer from Jesus, and he did strike the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. John 18.10 tells us the unnamed swordsman was Simon Peter, and the unnamed servant was Malchus. 
And the way I picture it, at least, is not that Peter asked Malchus to hold still while he performed a surgical removal of his right ear, but rather that Peter was going for a lethal blow to the head of Malchus, who likely leaned to his left and took a glancing cut that cost him his right ear. Only it didn't. Luke explains that Jesus stopped the violence by saying, no more of this. And then Jesus touched the servant's ear and healed him. No germ-free operating room, no surgeon to stop the bleeding, no synthetic monofilament sutures available, just a grace-filled touch from Jesus, forever altering Malchus's life. Jesus loved his enemies. And in the midst of a failure of betrayal, Jesus shows grace in healing. Then Jesus, with astonishing composure, said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber or perhaps a revolutionary with swords and clubs? When I was with you day by day in the temple, you didn't lay a hand on me then. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. You're serving the power of darkness. But even that hour of cosmic darkness served God's eternal purposes. Well, after a failure of pride and a failure of understanding and a failure of support and a failure of betrayal, we might think it's over. But there's one more failure, a failure of loyalty in verses 54 to 62. The mob seized Jesus. They led him away. They brought him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. Matthew 26, 58 says that Peter sat with the guards to see the end or to see the outcome. He wanted to see how it would play out. But Peter was not sticking next to Jesus during this time. Rather, he was following at what he thought was a safe distance. Only it wasn't. Because when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, a servant girl took a close look at Peter, perhaps through the flickering firelight, and she ID'd him. This man also was with him. With his own safety suddenly threatened, Peter fails on his earlier promise that he was ready to go with Jesus to prison and to death, and instead, in an act of self-preservation, he denies his association with Jesus, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And we see that this was not just a single failure, like, whoops, I messed up, I, I need to make that right, I can't believe that slipped out. Because a little later, Someone else saw Peter and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said emphatically, man, I am not. I am not one of Jesus' followers. And now it's starting to look a little more like deliberate lies, to distance Peter from Jesus. And about an hour later, Luke says, you know, there have been plenty of time to think over those first two denials. Still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Matthew 26, 73 tells us that Peter's Galilean accent gave him away. And this time, Peter replied, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while Peter was still speaking those words of his third denial, the rooster crowed. And not only that, but Luke tells us that the Lord himself turned from wherever he was in the high priest's house, and he looked at Peter out there in the courtyard. The two locked eyes. Now, we can only imagine what sort of look it was. Perhaps a look of disappointment, perhaps a look of compassion. Whatever it was, it pierced right through Peter, 
who remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. At a moment of great distress for Jesus, his friend denied even knowing him. He chose his own safety over his loyalty to Jesus. An epic failure of loyalty. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Perhaps that being the initial step in Peter turning back to the Lord. And yet again, in Peter's epic failure, Jesus' grace is present. Think about it as, as Peter replays in his mind how he denied Jesus three times. He probably went back to how Jesus had foretold that triple denial before the rooster crowed. And if Jesus was right about that, and he was, then surely Jesus was also right that Peter would turn again and strengthen his brothers. So we can see grace in what Jesus said earlier in that night before Peter's pride and his neglect of prayer preceded his failure of loyalty. What about us? Uh, sometimes when we fail, we may wonder if the Lord will forgive us. Well, when God's children fail, Jesus grants restoring grace, as we see with Peter in John chapter 21. In the, Rome, uh, the words of Romans 5.21, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace isn't something we deserve. It is something we receive as a gift. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. In closing, consider these five possible applications from our passage. Number one, replace proud self-confidence with humble God-confidence. Number two, Praise Jesus, who is at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us that our faith may not fail. Thirdly, as we pray, like Jesus, openly tell God our desires and submit them to his will. Fourth, as we weep over our sins, be thankful that God restores his children Fifthly and finally, perhaps most importantly, give glory to Jesus, who is the only one who does not fail. Give glory to Jesus, the only one who does not fail. While all his followers were failing in various ways, Jesus was walking forward to the cross to die for the sins of his failing followers. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Our Heavenly Father, all of us see ourselves in this week's passage. We need to replace proud confidence in ourselves with humble confidence in you. We praise Jesus who intercedes for us at your right hand that our faith may not fail. And in our own prayers, Father, may we follow Jesus' example by openly telling you our desires and submitting them to your good and wise will. When we're sorrowful over our sins, may we find hope in how Jesus restores. And may we give glory to Jesus, the only one who does not fail, the one whose grace is greater than all our sin. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.